Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors. Take a walk and make a podcast. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we are preaching. I have been listening to podcasts lately at one and a quarter speed, which has been really revolutionary, but now I want to talk at that speed in real life because I realize it doesn't work. Anyway, that's my random tidbit to throw into the midst today. What's astonishing you? Well, here's what's astonishing me. What's astonishing me, friends... (laughs) is that Kate and I are no longer going to be friends. And let this, me tell you why. This is the last episode of this podcast. This is the last episode of this podcast. And let me tell you why. So, friends of this podcast, listeners of this podcast, let me tell you the story. Friends, Romans, country. Let me tell you the story. Lend me your ears. No, no. You, you, you do not get to say anything for a moment. So, Kate and I usually talk throughout the week, not just when we record this podcast, and that is especially true when we are preaching the same text on Sunday. As in last week, we preached the same text from Colossians chapter 2. We even met on Friday to talk about some of the difficulties of this text that we were preaching. That you chose. That I chose, yes. So, you also need to know, friends of this podcast... (laughs) That normally, Kate and I meet on Tuesday mornings to do our run, walk, and as we begin our time, normally our check-in question is, how did it go on Sunday? And that's the time when we celebrate, lament, analyze, wail and gnash our teeth. (laughs) All the things that happened or did not happen on Sunday morning, which is really great because, you know, we are married to people. We have life partners who do not want to both (laughs) listen to our sermons and analyze them afterwards. And so it's great that we have that time together on Tuesday. Colin gives me an analysis every week. I'll be like, how was worship? And he says, fine. Fine. (laughs) That every week. And I used to press them okay, for no, more. Okay, no, 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 no. Okay. We're not changing the subject. No, 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 okay. no. So we meet on Tuesdays to talk about Sunday. It is rare. It is really rare for us to talk on a Monday. But yesterday morning, Kate called me. And to her credit, I will let me give her credit for this. When I answered the phone, she asked me, First, how Sunday went, which is, listen, if you are an extrovert and you have an introverted friend, you will bless them by being intentional about asking them about how they're doing because a lot of times extroverts can, it can be about them. We're jerks. Right. No, I'm not saying you're jerks. I'm just saying it can be about you. But Kate, to her credit, asked me, how did it go yesterday? And I shared that, you know, I really struggled with the text and the sermon didn't go the way I'd planned. Um, In retrospect, maybe, you know, in a 30-minute sermon, I probably needed about an hour to really do what I wanted to do with the text. (laughs) That is what you started with. You're like, I needed an hour. I was like, whoa. I... Well, if you if you listen to that sermon, the first two minutes and maybe the last two minutes were pretty good. Everything in between, I think people stopped tracking with me. But that's my analysis. So since my friend asked me how my Sunday went, 
I asked my friend, so how did it go at the Grove? And she said, and I quote, I was on the struggle bus. I was. <laughs> Hold on. No, no. Hold on. Which means, in preacher language, it wasn't the sermon I wanted to preach. It wasn't, it didn't go the way I'd planned. I wanted to preach a better sermon. And so we lamented the struggles that we had preaching on Sunday. And then Kate was very intentional about saying, hey, we really need to get on it this week and let, let's get going early so we can do better next Sunday. And so we started talking about themes uh, and ideas for this week. So then the conversation ended. And this was 1130, 12 noon yesterday. So around 7-ish last night. I said, well, let me listen to Kate's sermon. I listened to it, and the longer I listened, the angrier I got. <laughs> I was like, Kate Haynes Murphy has lied to me, because this is actually a good sermon. And friends of the podcast, understand that when we met on Friday... We took all kinds of notes and shared all kinds of ideas. But on Sunday morning, Kate had this wonderful, perfect refrain. What are you afraid of, church? Did she share that with me on Friday <laughs> or text me on Saturday? No, no, no. She kept that for herself on Sunday. <laughs> so I'm listening to this sermon, and it is really good. And so I'm just waiting for the struggle. I'm waiting to sense, you know, I'm a preacher too. And so I can sense when a preacher is struggling. There was no struggle. It was a good sermon. And so, listen, at this point, damage is being done to my soul. <laughs> because I am listening to the word of God preached well, but I'm ticked off. I am in my, I'm swearing at my <laughs> friend in my head because I'm, I, I was vulnerable and say, you said how, how, how horrible my sermon went. And I thought she was in the same place and we were, you know, being vulnerable together, but no, <laughs> she preached a great sermon. So friends of the podcast, this is the end of my <laughs> friendship with Kate Haynes Murphy. We're enemies now. Oh, I, we don't have to be enemies, but um, yeah, no, I, I don't know what you were talking about. Okay, can I, can, like no, for no, real, no, no, can no, I no, talk no, hold now? on, hold on. She said, I, and I, friends who are listening, go to the Grove YouTube page and listen to this sermon. And if there's a place to leave a comment, just say, Yolando was right. Okay, so first of all, I'll say, with that buildup, no thing created by humans can match the buildup that you have just given it. Um, that's called an overhype. But I, but I will say, um, like real, real talk. I mm -hmm. think we we have talked often through this whole series, but we're doing a, a sermon series together on like six ways to look at the cross, ways to look at the cross in Lent. And this um, came from the sense that we we spend a lot of time preaching the gospel. Like we, we are followers of Jesus. We're committed to the way. 
and we see the glory of God in so many aspects of Jesus's life um, and in Jesus's resurrection and in the body of Christ that is the church. But the the cross itself, I mean, it's one of the places that we um, have some real divergence in sort of how we understand the cross. Like you're, you are more of a classic or, or you, I don't want to say you're a classic substitutionary atonement person. I don't want to put that word in your mouth, but that 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 is an aspect of the cross that you find meaningful and rich and important. So not only that, but that and and I just struggle more with substitutionary atonement and that's been like navigating that has been just an ongoing conversation that we've had for whatever, 11 years now. Um and I just was realizing that a lot of the ways that I deal with the cross is to to say what I don't think it says, <laughs> like to to preach against what I think false understandings of the cross are and, and ways that um, theologies of the cross have been used, I think, in antichrist ways. Um, but and then there are just other aspects of the life of Christ that are more pleasant to me to contemplate. And so I don't, I don't think I have learned to look well at the cross. And so that was sort of the impetus of this, of this season is to say, like, I feel like as a, as a person who follows Jesus, there is just a, an ocean of revelation in the cross that I know is there, but I haven't learned to see. And I think that to be a faithful pastor, I want to um, just do do that work and and share and share it with the congregation. And um, so that was the the impetus for this worship series. And it's a it's a real challenge for me because it's not most of the time when people are talking about the cross, like it's not a narrative. I like. I like to preach the stories in scripture. Um, and there obviously is the story of the crucifixion, but, but I, you know, no one, no one, least of all me really wants to read the story of the brutal death of Jesus for six weeks in a row. And, but the scripture talks about the cross a lot, obviously in the letters um, and Paul and, and, and it becomes this abstract theology and it's almost like this intellectual football and people talk about the cross in ways that like to, to pick a theological side or to sort of declare who they are in terms of what you believe, or it becomes a question of like, are you right uh, or wrong? Are you orthodox? Are you a heretic? Are you a real Christian or a fake Christian? It, and and in all of that arguing, I think sometimes we just don't actually try to see the cross. And it's hard to see anything other than what people are yelling at us and saying, if you don't see this in the cross, you are not part of the body of Christ. <laughs> and so um, I, I just, this has been, a, when I, this has been, I, I felt very called to do, I didn't want to do it, but I felt very called to do it. Um, but, and I, and it has not been enjoyable in the same ways that so much of the gift of being a preacher is just deeply joyful to me. I really, I mean, my 
kids mock me because I like one of my habits is when I go to the library to study, I always just take a picture of these books that I'm looking at. And I just really enjoy um, looking at what different people, mostly men, mostly white people, mostly Western white people have just, but like different things that different people have seen in scripture. And I really enjoy, and I, I, I see new things and I sometimes see like, Oh, I don't think that, I mean, it's just a really enjoyable process for me. And looking at some of these really dense Pauline texts, like I just don't, um, I really struggle to, um, understand what Paul is trying to say, what these scholars are trying to say, what it possibly, you know, could, could, how it could be interpreted and applied. And it's just, it's, I mean, it's a struggle. And I think like, it's, it is enjoyable to sit down and think about like, oh, how does Jesus take one small child's offering of two loaves and, or five loaves and two fishes and feed a multitude? Like, that's just a pleasant thing to contemplate and to contemplate not only just the act of crucifixion, but also some of the really um, just terrifying ways that people have um, seen God through that act, some of the terrifying ways that people have um, like labeled and excluded and accused and rejected other, you know, it's just, it's just, it is very painful. And also, you know, if I, if you or I talk about, say, the feeding of the 5,000, and we say something that is perhaps not exactly right, like, we just, we're just wrong, like, hey, spoiler alert to nobody, like preachers are wrong. Like we just, we're doing our best. We're human people. We're following the spirit. And sometimes you say something and then maybe years later, you're like, oh, that, that was just incorrect. Like I, it was sincere, <laughs> but it was wrong. And if, and if, if you as a preacher lead someone to misunderstand something about the feeding of the 5,000, I'm not saying that doesn't matter. It does, but it's a, different thing than if you say something wrong about the cross, which is just the heart of everything. So I just like, the whole thing is just so hard. And then also, you know, this stress of what the gospel is, what the way of Jesus is, it's beautiful and it's hopeful and it's empowering and fruitful and um it's 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 hard to make the cross beautiful because i mean it is but it's hard to see it that way i mean just like for all of that like just the it just feels like like i i don't know like the like trying to run an ultra marathon in 20 minutes. Like it just, it feels like it's something you've got to attempt to do, but it feels improbable to be able to do it well. And, and, and also when I'm saying like, honestly, I, and I'm not ashamed of this, but like, it's not that I, I wholly give my life to Jesus and I struggle when I look at the cross and I'm not going to stand up in front of anyone and say like, oh yeah, the cross, 
Got it. I like got nail that. it. You got five minutes. Let me explain it to you. I mean, I just, and I think that that's important to, to be honest and transparent with people about that. This is the glory of God. And so I'm not like, I think it's offensive, honestly, for people to stand up with swagger and I mean, who, who like, I don't know, you know, there's that saying like, get, get their name out of your mouth, right? Like you just like some preachers just want to be like, get, get it out of your mouth. Like that's, so I just, um, I am, I often find that the things that we least want to do are the things that are the most profitable and beneficial to us. And I did deeply struggle with this text all the way through, all the way through. And, and, you know, where we were on Friday, like we left on Friday and both of us are like, okay, we, we, we see it. We're excited about this and this is going to be hard. And I wrote like five pages of a sermon on Friday. And I was like, I was like going to preach the Colossians text and I was going to preach the Exodus 12 text and I was going to preach the like the the guest that Jesus rejected from the wedding banquet. Right. Like I just I like, you know, I just was off the rails and um, and sick. And I I mean, but to your point, like I, I was struggling, like you can ask my friend Lindsay when I called her up on Saturday and I was like, I I'm like, I'm lost. Like I can't do this. And I took like a two hour walk with her and trying to talk through it. And I, you know, threw out that sermon and I just really, um, was struggling. And so I, I do think that sometimes it's so hard and sometimes, sometimes you just struggle all the way through. And at the end of it, you, what you have is a pile of struggle. And sometimes you struggle all the way through and you just keep pressing and you get to a point of clarity. And I feel like I got to a point of clarity at like, well, I mean the beginning of a point of clarity at like mm, eight fifteen on Sunday morning and, you know, just wrote, wrote my way through to what was there on um, Sunday morning. And I, and I would just say this, like, We've said together that um, one of the things that we're uncovering, I, mean, I think I'm speaking for both of us, is that as as we do this, we realize like our muscle when it comes to talking about the cross is just not, it's just not well developed. Like we, it's easier to talk about the incarnation or the, you know, the exodus. Like there's just so many, or revelation, there are just so many places in scripture that there's just like a whole wealth of thinking that we have that we can draw from whenever we go to talk about those things. And I don't, I, I think both of us, like we have a lot of other people's thoughts in our heads and we have a, our reactions to other people's thoughts. But in terms of doing our own sort of deep personal reflection, like what does the cross mean to me? I, I think I've been scared to really even ask that question, even seek the Lord in that question. Um, and so yeah, I, I think it has been, it has been encouraging to me that sometimes like, okay, this is really the last thing we, we don't preach from the lectionary. And so we, we, and one of the things we've said about the series is like, this is one of the reasons that we are, are 
committed to not preaching from the lectionary because the lectionary wouldn't let us do this. Like say like, hey, we need to really think seriously about the cross and so let's do that. But the other challenge of not preaching from the lectionary is that every week you can sort of find a way to justify talking about the things that you love to talk about. And so I think you need the self-discipline of being able to say like the last thing I want to do is sit down and read, you know, 17 commentaries about you know, this, these three verses in Colossians that I can't understand. And, you know, and, and then to recognize, okay, if we we really, or I, one of my takeaways is I need to be more, I want to be more disciplined about walking towards the texts that really confound and confuse and confront me and deeply wrestling with them because there's, there's treasures in them. Um, but they're, but they don't, they don't come up easy. So you're saying you struggled with writing the sermon. I struggled with understanding the text. I mean, I will say. Understanding the text, writing the sermon, but not preaching the sermon. Correct. Correct. I mean, like by the time I stood up on Sunday morning, mm -hmm. but I think what I said to you, Mm -hmm. to be fair, what I said to you was I was on the struggle bus and I said, I wanted to start early or this week because Mm. I need like on Friday I felt like we saw it, but I needed more time to be able to figure out like cause we cause we do the whole four Andy Stanley questions. And so on Friday we um had really identified like what's the one thing we want people to know? Why does it matter if people know this? How does it change an individual if they know this? And how does it change how would it, what would a community of people who knew this? Like, what would it look like in the world? So I think we got those questions, but I still couldn't figure out how to then, like, get from the text to those questions. Like, I could do it in an, you know, a 90-minute walk with you, a conversation, but, like, being able, like, I just, yeah, it's hard. Mm. Like, thinking is hard. <laughs> Talking is hard. Oh. Mm. I mean, still. So, yes. I, I anyway, you are um, blessing me. Thank you. No, that's not the point. I know it wasn't the point, but it that's was. the point. It was the, the byproduct is, for me. Oh, I was on the struggle bus. That was a really good sermon. So, oh, thanks, yes, friend. no, I'm, I, we're, we're just not friends anymore. We, we may still podcast, but <laughs> not as friends. Uh, but really, my, my takeaway uh, from listening to your sermon is that uh, not only as preachers, but as followers of Jesus, we offer to God what we can in terms of our service, our gifts, um, our time, our energy, talents. And um, it is very hard, almost impossible, to rightly evaluate what you offer. Yeah. And um, it did cause, after... You know, I spent a night being very angry, like I'd been deceived by my friend. <laughs> <laughs> so I, you know, starting to get over it a little bit. But one of the things I, one of my takeaways is that, um, you know, we really do serve a God, in the words of Scripture, who does exceedingly abundantly more, mm-hmm. who, um, you know, takes Moses walking stick and it becomes a rod of power who enables Samson to use a donkey's jawbone to fight an enemy uh, army. Um, the, 
God who takes five loaves of bread and two fish and feed 5,000. And so it is a reminder that as preachers and as followers of Jesus, as disciples of Jesus, we have to be very careful about saying, um, determining, labeling our offering to God as good or bad or effective, um, but give God our best and let God do with it what God wants to do. Right. And, and I think we'll be astonished by that. And I think like the thing about all of this for, for me in this season is, I mean, first of all, I, I think... And, and this is just going to sound like I'm being like um, slick or flattering or whatever, but it, it is so true that the community you serve creates the, the preaching that you give. Like because, because my the community I serve is so loving and generous with me, um, I do not shackled with the need. I'm not shackled by competency. And by what, by that, what I mean is like, if you as a pastor feel like you must be competent or be excellent or be good every week, no matter what, then you're just going to have to stay in what you know <laughs> and in your own strengths, right? Because you can't, you can't fail. You can't you can't mess up. You can't, you have to be good. But if you serve a community that is, is saying, look, what we're asking you to do is to be faithful. And we understand that you are a, a, a human like us. And we understand that sometimes the attempt to be faithful while in itself is always beautiful. Sometimes it's not like, sometimes you're just not going to hit a home run. Like sometimes you're going to reach and try to plumb the depths of who God is and how salvation works. And you're just going to whiff it. Right. And you need to serve a community that will say like, preacher, we, we understand that this is like this, this idea that any human person can speak for God can illuminate God can like make the mystery and the glory of God like visible and understandable to human brains. Like we get that that is nuts. And so we're going to give you the attempt that like permission and celebrate you in trying to do this thing. And if you like suck trying to be faithful, we aren't going to crucify you. And like that freedom of knowing like I can, we can like really reach for something. Like when you get to, you know, Friday and you're written five pages of a sermon and you're like, this is terrible. And I don't know what this is. And if you are in a community that's like, be good or else you'd be like, I need to change my text. Like, I'm not ready to do this, so I just need to do something that I know I can do. But if you serve a community that really is saying, like, no, it is the Spirit of God who, and, and you know, God makes donkeys talk, so I can literally get up and be an ass in the pulpit, and that does not limit God's ability to edify, to illumine, to reveal things to people, then, then that kind of freedom means that you can seek God for, for more than you know, like you, you can grow, you can 
explore with people. And, and that I think is really where so much of the like goodness of God we can experience because we're all sitting in the room being like, this is, is here, but is not of us. This is in us, but not of us. Like I, you know, I feel like what we, where we got to on Friday was like seeing something that like, I mean, it's just so interesting. You're like, I know there's something there and I can just kind of see like the edges of it. And I just like, I can't articulate what it is that I know because I both know it and don't know it yet. And so you're just like keeping pressing in. And I think like being able to say like, look, I'm kind of scared to think about the cross because I'm scared of what I might see, right? Like I'm scared that I might discover if I truly look at this, that like maybe there are aspects of God that terrify me. Maybe there are aspects of God that I am offended by. Like maybe I will discover a God I don't like, maybe I'll like that I don't love. Maybe I'll fall away from faith like that. Like just being able to say, look, I believe that there is more of God than I can know, but my faith says that more is good. And so I can press through um, the doubt and the confusion. And it just takes a community of saints who really um, are there, you know, trying to be vulnerable to what God is doing and not trying to control something and saying like, let's, you know, let's play church and do something that is useful and good in our eyes. And um, so I'm, I'm so grateful. Like I, I'm working on this book project and whatever it becomes, um, well, if it's good, um, I mean, it, it will be because of the community of the Grove because I, I, I know things, I see things that I would never have seen or known without this community of people so um, bravely, authentically, vulnerably, showing up, trusting that God is going to do something that we can't. And um, I'm just so, and every day you're just like, well, either the Lord is going to continue to do what the Lord is doing, in which case I'm not afraid of my weaknesses. I'm not afraid of your weaknesses. I'm not afraid of my sin or your sin because God's going to keep being God all by herself. (laughs) Um, Or this isn't real, in which case let's figure that out sooner rather than later, right? Like I'm not interested in a bedtime story. So I'm, you know, I, I'm really, I did not enjoy the process of preparing to preach last week like I normally do. And I'm so grateful. Like, I'm so grateful for our friendship. I'm so grateful for the Grove. I'm so grateful for, like, just other really bold, brave people seeking God and saying, like, I've never read this in anybody else's book, but I think this, I think I see this. Um, Like, we've been talking about Julian of Norwich, and it's helpful just to be like, look, no one gave her permission to see what she saw. And she didn't ask for it. And so I think sometimes, like, particularly when it comes to a cross, like, we just are so scared and we've been told so clearly, like, this is sacred. And so if you think about it wrong, 
I don't know. Like, I mean, following that to its logical conclusion, there isn't one. But like, we're just afraid to think because we're afraid that we will, I don't know, like unthink creation or unthink ourselves, unthink salvation or, or unthink ourselves as Christians. And to say like, no, we, we, we're allowed to seek the Lord in, in, in this place, especially, um, and to say the way that Paul talks about the cross is just not how we talk about the cross. Um, we just sort of say substitutionary atonement. Now get back to work. Are you making fun of me? No, I'm not. But we know because I think what we said all along is it's not necessarily that there's not deep truth in atonement or even in substitutionary atonement, but the way we've used that truth to sort of slam the door shut um, and say, that's all this means um, is, is the, is the challenge. Um, no, I'm not making fun of you at all. And in fact, like I can remember being in seminary and meeting with my supervised ministry um, person. And I mean, that was just a bad fit. Um, and, and um, like they actually yanked me out of supervisement. Like I stayed in my placement, but they gave me an offsite supervisor because I was writing these like theological reflections and the, the people reading them were like, yeah, this isn't good. But I can remember going to my, like, we were having a conversation and, and at one point it came up about substitutionary atonement. And I, you know, he was like, well, you don't still believe in that, do you? And I was like, well, I mean, what, uh, what, what do you mean? Like, and for him, it was like, oh, and I think he actually really literally said to me, like, you'll grow out of that. And I just remember being like, wow. how in the world can people talk like that about this glorious mystery? Like, just like in this absolute, like, oh, this way that generations of Christians have seen the cross is just worthless garbage, throw it away, I've evolved. Be I mean, like, that's just gross. So, like, I'm not even saying, I, I'm, there are ways that people talk about the cross that I think are um, contrary to the actual revelation of the cross. And I think there are ways that people talk about sort of the transactionalism of the cross that I think are not truthful about who, about who God is that I see other places in scripture. But I think just because, but just because I think that doesn't mean I don't think there's any real truth and fruit and revelation in that understanding. I just think, um, I just think we've been lazy a lot and tried to make something simple that is glorious. Well, the next time you ask me how it went on Sunday, I'm going to say, fine, fine. It was all fine. So what's astonishing you? <laughs> I don't, I mean, um, I, I, I don't know. I've been sick and I'm getting better. And so I'm just really happy. Yeah. We didn't run today cause you were not feeling well. No, no. So I'm, I'm very glad to be better. I suppose I, I miss nothing of those pandemic days, but I had gotten used to just not getting sick two or three times a year. So mm. I'm, I'm grateful. I'm, I'm grateful to be, I'm grateful to be better. Um, but that's that's it. And uh, what we have one thing that we're thinking about that we wanted to talk about together. Um, that I I while I have been sick, I I I um, pivoted back and forth from like agonizing about not being able to understand what the heck Paul was saying in Colossians and watching um, pop culture YouTube videos. <laughs> 
So I'm not mad at that. No, I know you're not. Um, and so one of the things that people are talking about in the pop culture world that I actually thought was just really interesting for us to talk about in the context of this um, podcast and sort of our ongoing conversation about multiculturalism, because I think it is like a pretty um, low stakes example. And I think sometimes it's helpful to talk about concepts in a low stakes example before you try to talk about them in a really high stakes example. So this is, so there is a movie um, actor named Hugh Grant that probably many people have heard of. He's, uh, um, he's most known for rom-coms. He's British. Um, He was in um, Bridget Jones diary and Notting Hill. And um, he's sort of a, you know, I don't know. He, he, he's a lot of people really, really like, I mean, I like him. Um, and he, um, was at the Oscars for some reason. I don't even know why he was there. I don't know that he's in anything that was nominated, but, um, and he was interviewed on the red carpet by this woman, Ashley Graham, who is a model, who's a plus size model. Um, and she was just doing like the inane red carpet interviews that people do with celebrities and like I mean they are not talking about I mean it's 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 frivolous it is designed to this is be not frivolous a conversation about foreign policy correct and and it's supposed to be like like when you if you are watching the Oscars and I'm not judging you like but you're essentially the 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 joy of it is this is silly it doesn't matter it's entertaining right it's just babble and so Anyway, so it it people have been talking about this particular encounter a lot because Ashley Graham, who was a correspondent for E Entertainment Network, was asking Hugh Grant the standard questions that people get asked as celebrities when they go to the Oscars. So her first question was like, "Who are you excited? Like, who are you hoping will win tonight?" And um, who are you wearing? And who are you wearing? And then she, oh, he was in Glass Onion. And she, anyway, so she asked these questions and he was, I mean, so the debate, his responses were very, uh, let's say, unhelpful. Like she said, she said, who are you, um, who are you hoping for tonight? And he was like, I, I don't know. And she was like, okay, well, what are you excited about at the Oscars? And he was like, I mean, just... It's just ridiculous, isn't it? It's like Vanity Fair. Now, interestingly, he meant, British, he meant Vanity Fair like the book about sort of the superficialness of incredibly wealthy people and sort of the, um, you know, what it says about the values of a culture, this whole production. She thought that he meant Vanity Fair, the magazine who hosts a party after the Oscars. And so she was like, oh, yeah, we really do like to let our hair down and dance afterwards, right? So there was just this mismatch of he was talking about, he was using words, talking about one thing. She heard those words and understood him to be talking about something completely different. And each of them thought that the other person understood what they were saying. Then she asked him about... um what he was wearing and he said my suit <laughs> and she was like I mean who is the designer and he was like I don't know my tailor and like bless her at this point like she's like it's her job to get him to answer these questions and he's just not answering them and she's like being really um like 
friendly and positive and really trying to make this seem like a normal, pleasant, non-awkward encounter. So she says, oh my goodness, you were in this movie Glass Onion. That must have been so fun. Did you really enjoy it? So like softball question. And he said back to her, I was only in it for three minutes. I was barely in it. I was barely in it. And then she's like, okay, well, bye. (laughs) I mean, so she just kept like trying to have a certain kind of conversation with him that she was expected to have by her employer and that she knew people wanted to see. And he just didn't, he didn't play his role. He didn't do what he was, quote, supposed to do. And so then people are talking about this encounter and there's real um, sort of a division of opinion because some people are like, oh my goodness, he was so rude to her. And why did he stop to talk to her if he didn't want to talk to her? And she was so great to keep trying to engage him. And then other people are saying, he wasn't rude. He was British. And that in England, they sort of see the social niceties of America, the U.S., as really fake And um, that while Americans, if you are an actor and you're asked about a project that you're in, you're supposed to say like, oh my goodness, it was so wonderful and it was so meaningful and I'm so proud of what it did. Like you're supposed to talk about how good it is. And And in Britain, to talk about something you did and say that you enjoyed doing it and that you're like happy with how it turned out is seen as really obnoxious and egotistical and bragging. And so some people, so people are divided about whether or not that, like, he was rude to her, whether she was, like, aggressive to him. And what I think is interesting about the encounter is you have two white people talking to each other, and they're essentially having two different conversations, and they don't know it. And so she was offended by him. He, I mean, I don't think that he understood. I mean, may like, I don't know. I mean, if he understood what he was supposed to do and didn't want to do it or understood what he was supposed to do and just thought like, I don't have to do this. I'm allowed to be honest. Like you are asking me a question. This is how I honestly am answering it. But I think it's helpful for me to look at it and go, we oftentimes are really offended by other people. And we assume we know what they mean when they're talking and we assume that we know why they're saying what they're saying. Like I think that she, many people assumed that he was rude because he didn't respect her and that he was trying to make her feel and look like an idiot. And other people are saying, no, he wasn't. He was just being his authentic British self. And I just think as people who lead multi-ethnic communities and multi-racial communities, it's a really helpful example of how they're just, two people can be totally certain that they know what happened in a conversation where they're speaking the exact same language. And honestly, they're just completely talking past and over and around each other. And if you don't, then like, this is obviously like an artificial situation, but if, if that happens in real life and you don't circle back around with the person and do the harder work of saying like, actually, when I asked you 
who you were wearing and you said my suit, I, you know, that made me feel really um, embarrassed and like, why did you stop to talk to me if you didn't want to, if you were just going to make fun of me, you know, if you don't have those follow-up conversations, if you just walk away and go, oh, well, that person's a jerk and they tried to humiliate me and I'm now done being in relationship with them. Like, I just think that's an example of how we talk about spiritual warfare and we always think it means like we let the poltergeist teach us what spiritual warfare is. And so we say like, well, as long as nobody's levitating over a bed, there's no spiritual warfare going on. And I actually think that, you know, the kind of spiritual, it's helpful for me to think of spiritual warfare as the way that the enemy of our souls can, um, can, can, can influence our thinking or our perceptions of ourselves or other people, or can sort of weaponize our authentic strengths and weaknesses in ways that make them threatening or harmful to hurtful to other people. And when we don't do the second step of having like brave, clarifying conversations, when we'd rather just like stay in our story of, I know what happened there and I'm no longer interested in being in relationship with that person. Like that's how we then forfeit the unity that I think that we have in Jesus if we want it. But we have to decide, like, do we want to have unity with a person or do we just want to have a story about here's one time where I felt bad and I'm the innocent victim and the other person is the guilty perpetrator? Well, um, when I saw this interview, um, my first honest reaction was, he's a jerk. (laughs) (laughs) Because I saw it in terms of a power dynamic. Mm-hmm. that he had the power, she was in a vulnerable position. And when it comes to multi-ethnic, intercultural uh, church and relationships, that uh, those in power, my, my takeaway was that if you are in a position of power, part of the work that you have to do is, is to bridge the gap enter into mm-hmm. the other person's world. Because the person who is in the minority, the person who has less power, um, they have a history. They, they, they must adapt to the majority in order to uh, survive, advance, just live, move, and have being. And so that's the way I saw, I saw it as, a, as a, uh, a, the balance of power, that he had the power in terms of how the interview went, uh, in terms of um, being less vulnerable. Well, I do think he has more power in the sense that like, he's a very famous mm-hmm. and wealthy movie actor and she and, is not. And this is not his first time at the Oscars. Right. This is not his first time in a Hollywood setting. So he actually knows the culture and has the ability to say, oh, I'm in this context. And so because I'm in this context, I will operate in this way. And, and so that's why my, my takeaway was, oh, this was, this seemed very intentional to me. And this is like, I think, again, like the whole point of it is we can talk about this in what is admittedly low stakes. Mm-hmm. Because honestly, she, she, she actually ended up probably better off because the interview was so awkward because she's gotten a lot of attention. So I'm not saying that any big thing happened here. No harm. I'm just saying it's interesting to talk about this and to say, I mean, because to your point, I think a lot of people would say like, well, he didn't do anything wrong. He was just his authentic self. And I think it's helpful. What you're saying is really helpful for us to think about just because you're being authentically who you are. If you're a person with a lot of power and you're not 
interested and how your sort of natural expression of yourself might cause harm for the person that is in front of you, then you're not walking in love towards that person, right? Because if you are vulnerable, you have to do that. You have to adjust. You have to ask, let me pull back. You don't have to. (laughs) Um, You have choices always. Um, But most of the time, if you are looking to advance, if you are looking to sometimes even survive, it is to your advantage to make the distinction between what I would naturally do in my own cultural context and what I need to do in light of the majority. To be perceived as acceptable. Mm-hmm. Right. Like he had the freedom because of his power to break the rules of the convention of show up and pretend and say something interested. And he was able to show up and essentially say, this is all stupid. So here, here and is, she couldn't. She here, couldn't say, yeah. you're actually not making my job very easy. Like, come on, Hugh. Give you know. So in congregations that I've served, multi-ethnic one of the things that I've heard repeatedly white Christians say, and this is a quote, I can't clap and sing because I'm white. Like that, and and that makes sense to them, but that is a ridiculous statement. Mm -hmm. You can't clap and sing because of your ethnicity but that is so ex- accepted as normal that there's that they can hold that point of view, walk in it, and receive very little, if any, pushback. Right, and I think like to to give a more, um, I don't know, a, a, a higher stakes example. I think sometimes when you're in multi ethnic communities and you are as a community going to have a conversation about something that is um is painful that is high stakes so like say you you recently at a presbytery meeting which was held at a historically white congregation the um pastor of that congregation at the we talked about this oh we talked about this on the podcast right so so they stood up and talked about how they had removed Confederate symbols from their um, stained glass windows. Stained glass windows. Right. And, and so what that conversation was very authentic. It was very sincere. Um, and, and it was a very, the, the, white man who was sharing his experience was sharing it in a way that was very empowering and encouraging for other white people. Like essentially saying like, this will be challenging, but ultimately it will be a, a, a beneficial, a good and a fruitful experience. Like it's worth it. Right. What I think is important if we really want to have healthy and holy multi-ethnic communities is to understand that just because you're standing up there and sharing your authentic experience authentically, I think to really walk in love with people who are, who don't share your lived experience, you need to ask the next question of how would someone 
um, who doesn't share my identity hear some of the things I'm saying. Because, and I think I share this on the podcast, like part of my concern is when you as a white person stand up in front of a room of a, 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 a congregation, a multi-ethnic congregation, and you share about how it felt for you to decide whether or not you were going to continue to have Confederate symbols enshrined in the sanctuary. And you talk about how like, well, that was, that cost me some, made some of my relationships difficult, but ultimately it was a really enjoyable process for me. Um, how does it feel as a person of color to hear just this very abstract conversation about symbols that, um, that explicitly say that your humanity is three-fifths as valuable as the humanity of the people who are making the decisions. Like, that's, that's horrific. Like, if you, and, and a person, you wouldn't stand in front, a white person wouldn't stand in front of a white community and say, we had some really profitable and ultimately joyful conversations about whether or not we should remove Nazi symbols from this mural in our city hall. Why wouldn't we do that? Because we would know, hey, some of these white people out here are Jewish. And so to say, oh, we're having a casual abstract conversation or even a a, a dangerous conversation about whether or not we should remove um, propaganda of a regime that tried, that, that killed your family and, you know, we would say like, wow, this is like, I don't want to act like my discomfort in having a conversation exists on the same plane as the trauma and terror of these regimes, right? Or maybe the context that I want to have this conversation is, um, I, I, I can imagine that it might be really hard for some people to hear that 200 years later, you're just willing to risk a conversation about it, right? So I feel like it's that next, I mean, that's what you're saying. Like you're having a conversation and you're showing up and being your authentic self. And sometimes we can think like, hey, all I need to do is show up and be my authentic self. And I don't think that's true. I think that what Christ demands of us is to show up as our authentic self sincerely with the ethic of what does it look like to love the people who are in the room and maybe even love the people who are not in the room and to really be curious and wondering of like, how might I not by intention, but by impact, how might my, my authentic experience, um, and my, the way I represent it, how might it be, um, causing deep pain, um, for someone who's, who's listening? Yeah. Another, um, Wait, so can I just say one thing? Sure. So like, so if Hugh Grant, to go back to the low stakes example, had said like, I think these questions are stupid and I don't really care if people approve of the way I answer them. But this woman sitting in front of me does not have my power and my prestige. And so it doesn't matter to me how I answer these questions, but it might actually make a big difference in whether or not she's allowed to can keep her job. So even though I don't want to play this game, for the love of the person in front of me, I'm going to answer these questions in such a way that it does not cost her anything to be in the conversation with me. And that's, I think, where, again, like the Christian ethic, I'm not saying the human ethic, like humans can do whatever they want, but the Christian ethic is, is to say, I'm not just going to show up as my authentic self, I'm going to show up authentically trying to figure out 
I don't want to harm the person in front of me. And that's what I think, again, low stakes, who cares? But Hugh Grant wasn't doing that. He was just showing up as his authentic self and saying, this is my truth. And he wasn't thinking about how that was impacting the person across the mic from him. Yeah, I also think um, marriage is a good illustration. You show up as your authentic self, and then as you go along in marriage, you make a lot of changes. You don't simply say, well, this is who I am, and you just have to deal with it. Yeah, or this hurt you, but that's not my, I didn't mean to, so that's not my problem. You say like, well, if I authentically love you, then if I hurt you, I'm going to care and I'm going to shift. And I might say, like, be very honest about like, I don't know how to shift or this isn't my intention, but I need help. But what you won't do is just be indifferent to the like pain or discomfort or cost that you're causing the person across from you. So we're out of time. Um, not out of words, but out of time. But thank you so much for listening. And if you want to find out more about what God is doing at God's Church, Derrida Presbyterian Church, that's D-E-R-I-T-A. And you can go to their website, which is www.deridachurch.faithlifesites.com. You got it. Excellent. That's sites with an S. And if you want to um, watch Yolando's sermons, um, especially this last week, you should go to the Derrida YouTube channel or you should go to the Derrida podcast and be blessed by that word. And if you want to find out more about what God is doing at God's Church, The Grove, you can go to the website, which is thegrovecharlotte.com. Org. You can go to our YouTube channel or our podcast, the Grove Church Podcast, on iTunes or you know wherever wherever you get your podcasts. Um, the Dorita Podcast is on the Podbean website. Uh, thanks for listening, and we will talk next week. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs>